Let me pray for us as we get started. Father, uh, we ask that you would um, uh, guide us in our understanding. Thank you for the book of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for the many things that you have taught us over this past year. Uh, I pray, God, as we conclude this study, that, Lord, you would, uh, you would challenge us, you would draw us near, more than anything, that, God, you would reveal Jesus to us uh, as we walk through this passage. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last uh, few months, they've been sort of heavy, right? Um, there have been, uh, many of our lives have been turned upside down. For, for those of you who have served on the front lines uh, as nurses and doctors, uh, it's been described and sometimes has been described as a, as a war zone at times with so many, especially early on during this uh, pandemic. And in light of all, of all of the heaviness and all that's been going on, I do appreciate those who have tried to shed some, some light uh, in some dark days. Um, I've loved seeing just uh, occasionally I'll see these caravans driving around. Uh, you've probably seen them or maybe been a part of them. Uh, congratulating uh, graduates or uh, celebrating someone's birthday and they're driving around in caravans and stopping at houses and, and singing or, or, or uh, just giving congratulations for those. Um, I love seeing the yard signs celebrating the frontline workers in the emergency fields and the, uh, the, the medical fields. I've also loved just kind of some online stuff that maybe you've had a chance to see. Um, I love seeing one particularly by uh, John uh, Krasinski. Uh, if you don't know that name, it's also AKA Jim Halpert. Um, who has done a series uh, called Some Good News. And I just love watching those and seeing just kind of the collection of good, just kind of good news stories going on around the world that he kind of puts into kind of a little humorous uh, yet enjoyable um, uh, videos. So I've enjoyed those as well. And our city of 1 Corinthians has been much like this. Uh, there's been a lot of heavy and serious topics that we've had to deal with and we've had to cover as the, uh, the church in Corinth was, uh, was a mess uh, in many ways. There's a lot of issues going on. But I love the fact that the letter was even written. In our devotionals this week, we talked about this um, online, about just our response, kind of looking at over the whole book and what we've learned. And I just love the fact that the book was written. And not only was it written, there was a second one. <laughs> there was actually a third one, but we won't get into that one. It's missing, I suppose. But, um, but there's two letters in the, uh, in the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, that God wanted us to have. And they're both written to a church that's very dysfunctional and very broken, and yet God wrote it um, uh, because God loves his church. You know, we've talked about our series being that, that Jesus loves his church despite, right? Um, and so that's, that's been encouraging to see that. He, he could have written off uh, the church as a total loss, could have moved on. The letters could not have been written, but they were because God loves his church. And I love that despite how bleak it may be at the church in Corinth, even how Paul begins his letter and ends it is fantastic. He begins the letter by talking about how thankful he is for them. Despite all that he would write about and the things he would deal with, and the serious tone and nature he had to take at times, he was thankful uh, for the grace of God in their life. And then he ends the very last verse here of the, of the whole book in verse 24, basically says, uh, the original language is basically, I love you. That's what he says. As he, he tells the church, I'm so thankful for the grace of God in your life. And he ends with saying, I love you. And, and of all the hard things and difficult things, there's all this light and grace that has been uh, showered throughout the letter. So as we conclude our series today in 1 Corinthians, Paul in many ways summarizes many of the very important essential lessons that he has taught throughout the letter. And we'll, we'll talk about that today. And it's not shocking that there are some serious tones, as you've heard read, uh, in, in, uh Pastor already read that a little while ago. After all, he has had to kind of bring the hammer down on many occasions. But in the seriousness, again, there is love uh, because Paul wants the Corinthians and he wants us at Parkside to take Jesus seriously. He's not someone to take lightly. He is God Almighty. He is our creator. 
And, uh, and so it was looked at last week. Um, he's he's going to tell us things that, that make us a little uncomfortable. He's going to tell us things that don't jive with our culture. Yet he is going to command of us and, and demand of us and call us to things ultimately because he loves us, right? All these things, Deuteronomy 10, 13, I've commanded you are for your good. And so he has told us that. So here's what we're going to see uh, about this, this, uh, this lesson we're going to learn today is that uh, God has called us to take some things very seriously. And here they are. We need to take seriously sin and obedience, number one. Number two, doctrine and theology. Number three, mission and uh, ministry and mission. And finally, number four, grace and love. All right, number one, take sin and obedience seriously. If you skip down there to verse 13, you're going to find that Paul almost sounds like a general uh, getting his troops together, uh, addressing them before they kind of go out to battle on the front lines. And he knows that some of them are going to suffer. Some of them may even die, right? And so he writes to them and says the following, verse 13, Be watchful, stand firm, act like men, be strong, right? Just kind of bullet firing, kind of going after those things. And so let's just look at the first one, to be watchful, he says. It means to be on guard. It means to be alert. It means to be ready for whatever may be coming your way. The opposite of this would be to be indifferent, uh, to be casual, uh, to be nonchalant. Right? We need to be alert and be watchful. Uh, during uh, World War II, uh, after Hitler had taken over most of Europe, he kind of had signed a pact with Italy and Japan, and he had turned kind of his rage against uh, Churchill and the British Isles. And when he did so, um, it was actually interesting in the biography I'm reading um, about Churchill that uh, Hitler said he hated three things. He hated, he hated Churchill, he hated Roosevelt, and he hated communism. <laughs> Those were three things that end up, uh, actually ended up bringing him down. But anyway, he, he made a war against the British Isles uh, for, for about two years. He did what was called the Blitz. And that was a, a, Gre- a Greek, sorry, that was a German, different G. Uh, that was a German word that actually means lightning, right? And that's what it was like for the, for the British people for almost two years, watching bombs drop at night over and over and over again. As a matter of fact, um, for those two years, German planes dropped 30,000 tons of bombs just on London itself. And in September... In October of 1940, they dropped bombs at night for 57 straight days. Can you imagine living during that time? And the one thing that, that kept people alive in many ways was the air raid sirens that would alert the citizens to, to go underground. Many of them would go into the underground tunnels where the subways were there and uh, the stations. They would take shelter. And those, those saved millions of lives. And the people learned, the British people learned that when they heard the sirens, that they immediately had to go take cover because the bombs were coming. And, and that's what they were doing. They were watching. They were listening for these, these uh, alarms. In the same way, um, Paul has run many air raid sirens in Corinth uh, in this letter. Bombs of sin and destruction were kind of dropping all over um, the church. Marks of the detonated bombs, shrapnel of disunity and pride, sexual morality, greed, idolatry were kind of all over the church. Uh, they had um, drank the, uh, the cultural Kool-Aid, as it were, of Corinth and had become, begun to kind of um, resemble the culture more than resembling Christ. That's what they end up doing. And he's telling them here to be to stay watchful, stay alert, be on their guard against such things that he's written about, against the sins that, that they so easily kind of fall into. And he says to stay faithful to Christ. And this is a call for us. Uh, the call to be watchful and alert is something that we find all over uh, the New Testament. Uh, matter of fact, I'll give you a couple here. Matthew 26, Jesus speaking to his disciples the night right before he was betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane. He told them in Matthew 26, 41, 
keep watching and praying, there's our word watching, that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Right? So keep watching, keep praying, look after that. Uh, 1 Peter 5, 8, Peter would put it this way, be sober-minded, the idea, be serious, be watchful, be alert. Why? Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. And so there we have, be on alert for Satan. He's, he's prowling around looking for individuals who are separated from the body of Christ uh, to devour. Paul would put it this way, 1 Timothy four sixteen. he tells Timothy there, and, and us in turn, keep close watch on yourself. And on the teaching, persist in this, for by doing so you will save yourself and your hearers. Keep watch. Keep watching yourself. Keep watching your own soul. Keep watch on your doctrine, your understanding of theology, all these things. We'll get into that in a minute. But there's constant call to be alert and be watchful. This means, guys, that the Christian life knows uh, no ceasefires. There's no cruise control. There's no vacations from Christ, right? We are always in a war for our souls, And sin is always lurking to destroy us. You can go way back to Genesis 4 and find that imagery of sin is crouching at your door, right? It seeks to have you. We need to stay vigilant, stay on the lookout, again, not just for our own souls, but the souls of those around us. I love how J.C. Ryle, he was a pastor in Liverpool over in the British Isles there back in the uh, mid-19th century. He said this, he said, This warfare, I am aware, is a thing of which many know nothing. Talk to them about it, and they're ready to set you down as a madman an enthusiast or fool. And yet it's as real and true as any war the world has ever seen. It has its hand-to-hand conflicts and its wounds. It has its watchings and fatigues. It has its sieges and assaults. It has its victories and its defeats. Above all, it has consequences, which are awful, tremendous, and most peculiar. In earthly warfare, the consequences to nations are often temporary and remediable. In the spiritual warfare, it's very different. Of that warfare, the consequences, when the fight is over, are unchangeable and eternal. Right? So we need to be watchful. Uh, we need to be alert. And this is especially true considering our current situation. It is very easy. Maybe this is true of you. It's very easy during this time of separation when we can't see each other face to face to begin to kind of drift, to kind of put it in neutral, as it were, uh, in our relationship towards Christ. Uh, sin has a way of growing in isolation, right? And so, uh, and the constant gathering of the church is important for us to be together in person uh, because it helps helps remind us of the value of Christ. It helps keep us aware of the war that we're in. We kind of just get into a kind of peacetime mentality. Listen to how Hebrews would put it, Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promises faithful. Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day drawing near. Well, friends, we, we are in a strange time. We do look forward to next week, hopefully being face-to-face and being able to do this in person once again. But that gathering, that, that being connected with one another, that growing through relationships idea is so vitally important for us because without it, we tend to drift Right? We begin to get in that peacetime mentality. We forget to be watchful and alert. Let me remind you that sin and Satan does not take, does not take the time off. All right? There's no truce or ceasefire. We are still in a war today. We need to look after each other. We need to check in with each other. We need to keep encouraging one another to take sin and obedience to Jesus very seriously. Uh, the book of Revelation, John would put it this way. It says the, 
the dragon became furious, speaking of Satan, that the woman went off to make war on the rest of her offspring. Who is that? Who, is, who has Satan declared war on? It's those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. My friends, that's us. Satan has declared war on us. It's not something he has stopped doing during, during times of upheaval because of a pandemic, right? So we need to take that seriously. Number two, we need to take doctrine and theology seriously. Continuing in verse 13, he says, be watchful. Then he says, stand firm. The language is important here. In the faith. Paul tells them to stand firm. The idea is to hold one's ground in a battle rather than to surrender or run away in the face of opposition. And notice again, it is stand firm in the faith. Not stand firm in a faith of your own making, but stand firm in the faith. As Jude will put it here in a second, we'll read, the one that's been handed down once for all to us. Um, it's the complete doctrine of Christianity, the very truths, the very essence of Christianity. It's something that, again, has been handed down to us uh, from the last 2,000 years, and it's unalterable. And the point he is making is for the Corinthians and for us to stay grounded in good doctrine and theology. Um, listen to how Jude puts it, Jude 1.3. He says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And Jude says to contend. It's actually an interesting Greek word there. It's a Greek word from where we get our English word to agonize. Right? We are to agonize for the faith. Uh, it carries the idea of an athlete right? who, who does everything they can to win, exerts all effort, finds themselves struggling, uh, competing, fighting with all their might to win the competition. That's where that word would come from. So we're to agonize for the faith. We are to, to sweat hard, as it were, for, in guarding uh, our doctrine. We're to fight to stand firm in our, the, in our theology because so many around us are running away and so many around us are retreating. The fact that he says to, to, to contend, as Jude says, and then as, as Paul would tell us here to stand firm, tells us that, if, that the opposite is true if we just don't do anything, right? We're going to drift away. We have to fight to stand firm in these things. Again, so many are caving into whatever the latest trend is, whatever the latest ideas are, using Christianity as a means of their own personal advantage. And we've been handed something down from God, from others, to continue to fight for and to carry on to pass the next generation. So this means this standing firm idea is, is not just the job of the pastors, right? That's one of the main parts of the job of a pastor is to guard good doctrine, to protect the sheep from false teaching, that kind of thing. But it's also important for every single Christian to be a part of. In, our, in the church in Corinth, as we read throughout this book, uh, the pastors apparently had done a very poor job, right? Uh, they were tolerating all kinds of bad theology. It was causing all kinds of chaos uh, within the church. And that's why Paul spent so much time talking about theology. In the middle of all the addresses and things he had to deal with, he talked a lot about theology. You may remember there was three very specific areas of theology he, he brought up a lot. Uh, one was pneumatology, which we call it the study of the Holy Spirit. A lot of good stuff in this book about who is the Holy Spirit and how do we understand him and what is his role in our life. Um, there's a lot of information about ecclesiology. That's the study of the church. Right? What is the church? Where did it come from? Where is it going? Why is it important? Those are all very much dealt with in this letter. As well as uh, issues of eschatology. We saw that in chapter 15. Right, w The future, the study of the future, the study of end times. And it's really the idea that we study that so that it affects our life now. Right, Paul would end chapter 15 by saying, therefore, in light of all of this eschatology, this future resurrection, Right? Stand firm again. Right, Be immovable, always abounding the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain. 
Right? So all of that theology was super practical and super important. But you may ask the question, you know, why, why care about good, you know, sound doctrine? Why can't, why can't we just believe whatever we want to believe, right? And, uh, and leave it at that. Why this idea of contending or agonizing or sweating over, you know, theology and doctrine? What's the big deal? And there's a lot I could say to answer that question. I mean, one of which to me first comes to my mind is that, again, we've been handed this doctrine of theology in the Bible through multiple generations. And it's like a baton that's been handed to us with blood on it, right? People have died to pass this along to us. It's vitally important that we continue to contend for that. But one thing I want to make mention to you here is the fact that doctrine of theology, good doctrine of theology, are essential to our very mission, right? If you're ever going to impact the world... If you're ever going to change those around you, then you're going to have to combat false doctrine with good doctrine. You may not use that word doctrine, but you're going to have to fight truths, good truths against bad truths. I'll go back to the World War II here with Hitler for a minute. And you could say Hitler did what he did out of doctrine. It was bad doctrine, but he had a belief system. He didn't sit around a campfire one night and decide, hmm, I don't like the Jews. I'm going to get rid of them, right? He had a, a worldview a doctrine, a theology, a truth that he believed that some people were less important than others. And that's a doctrine. That's an understanding of reality, right? He believed what he believed because, and he even tried to use Christianity to back it up. He tried to use the Bible to back up even his belief systems. So do you you believe that's wrong, what he did? Well, yeah, of course you do. But to combat that, you're going to have to defend sound doctrine, propose good theology, and refute false teaching. That's what you do in doing that. You do the same thing when you try to talk a friend out of committing suicide. What are you doing? You're, you're combating bad doctrine, right? False teaching. You're, you're going to the value that, of every human being. You're going back to Scripture and every person is made in the image of God and the value of human life. That is doctrine. That's theology. So you're always combating. You're working against bad theology. So we need this. It's also, I would say, a lack of good theology, a lack of good doctrine, that causes most of our problems. And this is the case in the book of 1 Corinthians. Right? We disobey Jesus because of belief system. We obey Jesus because of a belief system. The Corinthians were divided uh, as a people, as you can see early on in the book, because some people, they believe some people were more important than others. Right? The Corinthians were suing each other, we find early on in the book, uh, because they believed their money and possessions were more valuable than people. Right? They were getting drunk at communion because some of them believed they were entitled to the wine more than others were, right? Especially the poor keep them out. All these sins, among all the others, were committed because of doctrine, bad doctrine, bad belief systems, bad understanding of, of God, the Bible, and people. Jonathan Edwards, who was a, a theologian uh, here in, in America during the uh, 17th century, wrote uh, a book called The Nature of True Virtue. And in the essence of that book, he argues how bad theology, or we would say bad doctrine, uh, causes sin, which destroys the, the fabric of society, right? It, uh, it destroys relationships. Um, he argued that human society was deeply fragmented when anything but God, he would say, is our highest love, right? That's, again, that, that, that belief is a, the belief that anything is higher value than God is a belief system. It's poor theology. It's undervaluing of God. And he would say that if our highest goal is the good, say, for example, of our nation or our tribe or our race, then we'll tend to be racist and nationalistic. If our ultimate goal in life is our own individual happiness, then we'll put our own economic and power interests, he says, ahead of those of others. And so that would say, like, only if God is, he would use a Latin word, 
Uh, only if God is our summum bonum. What does that mean? Our, our highest good. Only when he is our highest good, when our theology is right, when it's focused upon God and his value, will we then turn around, he would argue, and actually begin to value other people. Only, only then will we put people in the right perspective and serve them and give in light of that. In other words, it's a, a right understanding of God, a good theology, sound doctrine that will move us to mission and cause us to value others is more important than ourselves. My friends, this whole book, the Corinthians needed to take theology and doctrine seriously because they were te- teetering on the edge of disaster. They had other things, other people, as their highest good, right? As, as Edwards would say, their summum bonum, uh, what they viewed as their highest good. We are, we are in the same boat. We're in the same danger. We have to constantly fight, contend to stand firm in the faith, believing that Jesus is better than the world has to offer and people are important. Let me encourage you uh, to take your opportunity this summer to read. We always encourage you. We have a bookstore full of good books, right? And um, I always want to encourage you to read good doctrine, good theology, because it's not just there for information to check off boxes. It is information that transforms your life and transforms how you see and value people. Number three, take ministry and mission seriously. That same verse, verse 13, be watchful, stand firm in the faith, act like men and be strong. Okay, To act like men and to be strong were calls to to kind of to grow up, take responsibility, right? Be courageous. You'll hear similar phrases thrown out in Joshua chapter one when God addressed Joshua as the people of Israel were on the precipice of entering the promised land, right? Be strong, be courageous, he would say over and over to him. And so it's the idea of carrying out one's responsibility even in the face of extreme danger, even when the world around you might disagree with you. It's to not give in to fear, uh, discouragement, or hopelessness. Uh, unfortunately, the Corinthians were not acting like men. Uh, chapter 14, Paul would tell them that they were acting like children. Uh, they were extremely immature. They were fighting like toddlers over toys. Uh, they were even, back in, early on in the book, they were choosing kind of party leaders. I told you it was almost like they were wearing like t-shirts, as it were. This says, I'm of Paul, and I'm of Paulus, and they had their own little divisions going on. I mean, if they matured at all beyond the toddler stage, they never actually got beyond junior high, right? They were still in that very immature state. They were too consumed with themselves. They were too consumed with their own comfort, their own prestige, their own power and possessions, so they couldn't even see others in that way. So look down at verse 15. Paul would say, I urge you, um, brothers, he said, the household of Stephanus here were the first converts in, in Achaia, and they devoted themselves to the service of the saints. So Paul highlights Stephanus who, unlike the Corinthians, uh, took ministry seriously. It says here he devoted himself, which is actually, is we, get, we get the idea of the word, actually, is the idea of addiction. They, they, he was addicted to ministry. He was addicted to the service of the saints. Um, and so he, the idea is that he, he devoted himself, and now we get the idea of, of initiative, right? He, he didn't wait to be appointed. He didn't wait to have some job description given to him. He didn't wait for the pastors to get it together or the deacons to come knocking on their door. Um, he took the initiative to devote himself to ministry. He resolved to meet needs and serve people because that's what he resolved to do, right? In other words, he acted like a man, as Paul would say here. Biblically speaking, a man is one who takes initiative, resolves to do what God calls him to do, despite what others may say or do. So are you devoted to serving others in this way? Are you looking for ways to meet needs? Are you just kind of waiting for someone to tell you what to do, right? Paul's admonition here to be strong and act like a man is the idea of take that initiative. Look for needs and meet them. I love, uh, just as an encouragement, I love the initiative 
that we have witnessed during this kind of pandemic of some of you. We've seen you devote yourself and take the initiative. I mean, always we're seeing people here at the park uh, serving and continuing to work over and over again in many different ways. Um, I, I love that uh, some of you have taken a skill uh, like sewing, which I don't have that skill um, at all, uh, turn it into making face masks for people, right? And even Pastor Eddie shared me that, that others are asking, like, can we make these for other churches in Indianapolis? Can we, can we serve that way? That was all initiative, right? That's all people taking the initiative to serve Jesus. That is what Paul means by act like men and be strong. That's what he's talking about. Be like Stephanus. Be like that. He goes on in verse 17. I rejoice, he says, is the coming. And he gives the three guys here because they have made up for your absence. They refresh my spirit. Give recognition to such people. So it seems that these guys were like, kind of like couriers bringing the letter you know, from Corinth to Paul. And uh, it's quite possible that the two men here mentioned who are with Stephanus, it's quite possible, most commentators believe this, that they were either um, they were former slaves or freedmen, right? They, were, they had been freed from slavery. And we go we know this basically by their names. Uh, for Fortunus, uh, his name is where we get the Latin word fortunate. And it was a very common name given to slaves at that time who had been set free. They were very fortunate was the idea. Um, Achaicus' name is, simply means man of, 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 of Achaia. That was, again, another way they would usually describe a slave. They would say they're they a man of this, this city or this state or this country. So think about how radical it was then for Paul to end this and say, recognize such people. Recognize them. Um, Think about the Corinthians. Now, if you've been with us this whole time, right? They're wearing their jerseys of their favorite, you know, party leader. <laughs> and uh, and they're, they're chucking rocks at each other. Uh, they're trying to make a name for themselves. And Paul says, guys, act like men. Act like these men. Recognize these men, right? That's what he's saying. I mean, the Corinthians were recognizing, they weren't even recognizing each other. They wouldn't recognize anybody else, right? The Corinthians were all about status and fitting into the culture. And this idea of, of befriend, recognizing, befriending, recognizing slaves, freed slaves, uh, were considered, that was detrimental to their pursuits. And then you see the kind of irony that Paul brings in here. You can hear him going back to even chapter 1, where he talks about God chooses the weak. God chooses the despised, right? God chooses uh, the low. He's saying that to act like men, to be strong, is to recognize and join together with these kind of men, these freed men, right? That's what he's talking about. Those who are maybe seen as less than in the culture's eyes. This is what it means to take ministry seriously. It's to take every single person seriously because every single person is made in the image of God, right? Take them seriously, recognize them. Are you seeing people, right? Are you looking out for the, the marginalized, those who push the margins of society? We talked about this last week. You say, Chris, but we're we're unable to really do anything right now. I really can't look after anybody. We're kind of quarantined. We're in our houses. We can't do much. Let me give you something very practical, all right? There are many of you, I don't say many of you, I don't know you personally. There are many in our culture, let me put it that way, who are balking at the whole idea of wearing a face mask in public. Oh, it's stupid. We don't need to do that. Did you ever consider that actually doing that is actually not about you, but it's actually about serving other people? It's actually about looking out for other people, even if you think it's overdone or too much, right? So it's a very practical way that I can look, I can recognize others, I can serve others, I can, I can be courageous and strong by actually putting this on to actually uh, uh, protect them in that way, right? Let's look at someone else. Look at verse 19, who took ministry and, and mission seriously. We have this Aquila and uh, Prisca, I guess you'd say her name. In other places, she's called Priscilla. Um, and so they says here they, they had a church in their house 
and they send you hearty greetings in the Lord. And so they were a model of those who acted like men and were strong. Uh, they were with Paul at the very beginning of the start. If you remember back way back in Acts 18, when we first started the series, they were there uh, when the church was first started. And they show up often in Paul's letters as models of, of a commitment to ministry and mission. Uh, here we see they practice hospitality. They had a church in their home. Look what, he, look what Paul writes about them in the book of Romans. Romans 16 says, says to greet them, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. That's a strong statement. Risks, they, they, it says they, they risk their necks for my life. The idea is to, to throw away or abandon or put everything on the line. It was actually in the early church, there was a phrase, it was a, a used to describe those Christians who were kind of out in the front lines, those who were risking their lives uh, to get the gospel out and to serve people. Um, and they actually would call, the, the word was called parabolini. Parabolini, and the word means the riskers. That's what they were called. They were the, those are the riskers. Those are the ones who were really taking the gospel seriously here. I mean, they're out in the front serving people. And those are the ones who would, they'd go to the prisons and risk their lives going to give the gospel to the prisoners as well as giving them food and clothing because no one else would do that. They were the ones when the plagues came sweeping through the Roman Empire, the ones who stayed behind when everyone else ran. Right? Many of them got sick and died as well. They were the ones who would be persecuted because they represented everyone else's commitment to Christ. Right? They were the outspoken ones for Christ. And this is what it means. This is what it means to act like men and be strong. If you remember back in chapter 7 and 8 of this letter, there were people um, that Paul says they, they wanted to leave right? certain situations. Uh, they wanted to leave certain relationships. They wanted to leave certain vocations because being around unbelievers was hard. And if you remember back in chapter 7, about halfway through that chapter, Paul begins a comment that he carries on through chapter 9, 10, and 11. And he talks about, he tells them to remain. Stay where you've been called for the sake of the gospel, right? Stay there. And that's kind of what he's going after here as well. That's the kind of the idea of uh, Aquila and Priscilla. There, it was risky, but that's what it means to take the gospel seriously. Let me say one more thing before we move on to the next point. And I can't help but, but notice this. Paul says to act like men. Like what is he, why does he choose to point out men above women? Well, it's not, okay, because men were more important than women. That's not at all what he is saying. Rather, it's because men in the church, and probably was the case in Corinth, I could, I could surmise from the letter, that uh, they were the ones who probably were just passive, right? They weren't leading. They weren't acting like men. They weren't stepping up as Stephanus was and others here in this letter. They weren't courageous. They weren't strong. They weren't uh, taking risks, right? Um, and so they, they were being passive. Um, I've been doing some marriage counseling and premarital counseling, actually. Um, and uh, in Matt Chandler's book, The Mingling of Souls, uh, he made a very interesting point, I think a very fascinating point, when he says the root sin that's plaguing masculinity these days is the sin he calls a passivity, right? It's, the, it's an unwillingness to grow, an unwillingness to mature, take the lead, and be responsible. If you go back to the Garden of Eden, you find this, right, in the first man. Listen, Genesis 3, 6, when the woman saw the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of it, its fruit, and ate. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate. I don't know if you noticed or seen that before, but the silence of Adam in that verse is deafening, right? Um, while the serpent was engaging Eve in that story in chapter 3, tempting her to disbelieve God, disobey God's commandments, Adam was apparently just staying. I don't know if he had a bag of popcorn, some Mike and Ike's. He's just kind of taking it all in. And he's just kind of going, oh, that's a good point, Satan, I guess. You should, 
I don't know. You know, he just he didn't say anything. I mean, the text gives he she just gave it to him. He just stood there passively and did nothing, take no initiative to actually say anything. Right? Since that time, each man has followed in Adam's footsteps by refusing to step into what God has called them to do. Many men won't lead. Right? They won't step into the fray. They won't engage. Uh, they won't own what God has given them to own. That makes the greatest fight of your life, men. Right? The greatest fight is not to fight, not the fight against lust or the fight against greed, right, or the fight against pride, but the fight against passivity, right, that is, is in, our, in our souls. Let's act like men. Let's be strong. Let's take initiative. Let's identify with the lowly. Let's take risks. Let's take ministry and mission seriously. I love how uh, Paul Tripp, a writer, he put it this way. He says, your life is much bigger than a good job and understanding spouse and non-delinquent kids. It's bigger than beautiful gardens and nice vacations and fashionable clothes. In reality, you're part of something immense, something that began before you were born and will continue after you die. God is rescuing fallen humanity, transporting them into his kingdom and progressively shaping them into his likeness. And he wants you to be a part of it. I love that. He wants you, you to be a part of it. Not someone else, not those around you. He wants you to be a part of impacting people's life. That's one of the reasons why Paul wrote this letter. Take ministry mission seriously. God wants you to be a part of that. Lastly, take grace and love seriously. This letter has been loaded. Even though it's, it's got a lot of serious things happening there, there's a lot of comments about, a lot of talk about grace and love. Matter of fact, over 20 times, grace and love is talked about in this letter of 16 chapters. I told you it's a pretty dominant theme. Uh, as I said in the title of the series, it's called Jesus Loves His Church Despite, right, for a reason. Uh, so it's appropriate that Paul ends his letter by talking about grace and love and taking it seriously. And look at verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed, our Lord come. So, some of you may have thought, when we talk about taking the, the love and grace of God seriously, you may think that meant, okay, so that means you have to be soft and weak and passive or indifferent, but... Biblical love, biblical grace has teeth to it, okay? It's serious. They mean something profound. God has shown each and every person on this planet grace and love. He's shown all of them. We can go back to the infamous verse of John 3, 16. For God so, what, loved the world that he gave, right, his only son. That we see love and we see grace merged right there in that verse. And so we see that God takes that seriously. Jesus is not ambivalent to your response to his grace and his love. Right? He's rather dead serious about it. Right? Jesus' grace and love is, is not something to yawn at. It's not something to just consider. It's not something to, to even be interested in. Rather, God's grace and God's love are something we are to love in response. That's what Paul means here. And if we don't, there are serious consequences, as in consequences of a curse, which means consequences of hell. You say, that sounds like the opposite of love and grace to me. I thought we are talking about taking serious love and grace and we're talking about hell in the same language. Why does God tell us to take grace and love so seriously? Why does he tell us to take his grace and love so seriously? It's because he loves us to say those things. He tells us tough things because he loves us. If he didn't, if he didn't love us, he wouldn't say it. I love how Becky Pippert put it. She said, anger isn't the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves 
with his whole being. Right? God's not indifferent. That's why this verse is in the Bible. That's why it's written there. Take God's love and grace seriously. So if you know the grace and love of God in the gospel, your response should be to love God in response. That's what it means to be a Christian, to love God. And notice that it's not those who have no obedience who will be accursed. It's not those who, who have no submission. It's not those who have no compliance. It's those who have no love for Jesus. This means, I love this about Christianity. It's a wonderful thing about Christianity. You say, what does God want from me? <laughs> he wants you. Right? He, wants, he wants you. Not your obedience, not what you can do for him. He wants you. And when he gets you and he gets your heart, guess what will happen? Your life will transform and you will start to resemble him and live like him. That's why Jesus said this in John 14, 15. If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Right? The point is that if you love Jesus, if you love him with all of your heart, if you love his grace and his mercy, then the result will be you'll keep his commandments. It'll, it'll flow out of you. Right? It'll flow out of your heart. Obedience to Jesus flows out of a heart that's in love with Jesus. Well, again, back in chapter 1, Paul would tell us that Jesus chooses the foolish and the low and the despised. Why? Because ultimately, he gets all the glory for it. There's nothing they can give him. Right? There's nothing. They have no cultural credibility. They have no cultural power, no cultural sway. And so God chooses them so that they resemble and they love his grace and love, love his love for them. And in return, they live that out. I like how Psalm 51 puts it. It says, for you, you will not delight in sacrifice. This is the, the psalmist speaking to God, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with burnt offerings, even though God has commanded those. We find back earlier in Leviticus, he says, you don't just want that. The sacrifices of God, what does God ultimately want? A broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. Again, what does Jesus want from you? He wants you. He wants you. I've said this for the umpteenth time, right? This is why the Bible is not about you. And what you can do for God, it's about Jesus and what he's done for you. Right? And that's the point of that. It's like the old hymn, uh, Come Ye Sinners, which has a line that goes, Let not conscience make you linger, nor fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requires is to feel your need of him. Right? To feel your need of him. That's what God wants. That's what makes Christianity so beautiful because anybody can come to Christ. All you got to do is throw your life before him, right? God is not looking for the most moral. God's not looking for the most talented. He's not looking for the most popular. He's looking for those who feel their need of him, who truly love him. Right? Do you love the Lord? Have you responded to God's love and grace? Have you taken Jesus seriously? It's the only place you'll find life. It's, the only, it's like what Peter would say when people were starting to abandon Jesus and walk away in the Gospels, and Jesus turns to them and goes, will you too walk away? And Peter responded and says, where else shall we go? Right? You have the words of eternal life. There, there is nowhere else for us to go. I end with a story. I, I've shared the story with you before, but I just, I love it. And it is C.S. Lewis. It's not shocking to you that I would end the whole, the whole study of 1 Corinthians with Lewis. But uh, it's the Chronicle of Narnia series as well. Uh, but it was a book in that series called The Silver Chair. And in The Silver Chair, there's a young gal we introduced to named Jill. And Jill ends up in Narnia. And, uh, and she has to make kind of that decision of, is she going to respond? Is she going to take Jesus seriously in the story? It's Aslan. He's a Christ figure. He's also a lion, okay? And she has to decide if she's going to, going to bow before him, she's going to take him seriously. And in the, when she first meets him, Aslan, in the story, of course, he's a huge lion, and she takes off running for her life. She runs out in the woods. She runs so hard, she runs out of breath, and she's about dying of thirst when she hears the kind of, the kind of bubbling of a creek, right? She hears that. And she, uh, she goes, oh, fine, I got something to drink. And as she gets closer, 
uh, to the uh, to the brook. She about approaches it, and on the other side of the creek comes Aslan, the lion, right? And he's standing around the other side, and they're having like an eye-to-eye kind of contact. And she's trying to figure out, do I drink or do I not? And here's, here's what, uh, how it goes. Are you not thirsty, said the lion. Well, I'm dying of thirst, said Joe. Well, then drink, said the lion. May I? Could I? <laughs> would, you mind, would you mind moving while I do, Joe said. The lion answered, uh, this, uh, answered this with only a look and a very low growl, is how Lewis says it. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized that she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. So Jill responds to the lion. She goes, will you promise not to, not to do anything to me if I come? I make no promises, said the lion. Well, Jill says now was so thirsty, without noticing it, she had taken a step closer to the brook. Do you eat girls, she said. I've swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. Well, I dare not come and drink, said Joe. Well, then you're going to die of thirst, said the lion. Oh, dear, said Joe. Take another step closer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. It never occurred to Jill to disbelieve the lion. No one who had seen its stern face could do that. Her mind suddenly made itself up. It was the worst thing she had ever had to do, but she went forward to the stream. She knelt down and she began scooping up water into her hand. It was the coldest, most refreshing water she had ever tasted. As we end this virtually year-long study in 1 Corinthians, I pray that you go to the stream and I pray you drink, right? I, um, I pray you take Jesus seriously and all that he has taught you throughout this book, right? It is risky. It's always risky coming to Jesus. He's not safe. It's another quote from the book, right? It's not safe, um, but it's worth it. I promise you. Let's pray. Father, um, thank you for our study of 1 Corinthians. Thank you for the letter. Uh, it has been super enjoyable to me, uh, learning so many new things about you, um, about myself as well. And, uh, and just seeing, um, seeing Christ. And I just pray that um, all the things that we have learned, we will pass on to those, to others. I pray, God, that you help us to take you, your word, seriously. Um, Lord, as we uh, dive into this summer and, and begin to uh, look out on what you may have for us, God, may we have our eyes open to see uh, what you have before us, knowing that you've got us, knowing that you'll keep us. And God, I pray that you'd open doors for us um, for ministry for the sake of the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.